the theme for this evening's talk is what are we absorbing? We often don't realize and we're certainly not very clear about the ways and means in uh, daily life that what comes to us we internalize, we absorb and in an ongoing moment-to-moment uh, existence uh, with this world there's constantly much which is coming to our eyes and our ears which makes quite an impact upon us and being rather sensitive uh, human beings with organic life, with cellular uh, existence and having extremely sensitive instruments to be in contact with the world, namely the eyes and the ears it's easy for things to make their journey from the outside to the inside and therefore actually take root, take residence, so to speak, uh, within ourselves. And this dynamic from the outer uh, to the inner takes place gradually, it takes place hourly, it takes place daily and thus we find ourselves absorbing to an alarming and concerning degree an immense number, an immense variety of impressions. And these pressions enter into the mind, they enter into the feelings, they enter into the emotional life and of course sometimes are impacting as well on cellular life also. When in day-to-day life this constantly uh, uh, happens and we barely take stock of it, we just kind of get uh, used, of it, used to it, in a way, unbeknowingly to ourselves, we're kind of asking for trouble. And then we find what happens is that when there is that movement from the outer to the inner and we're absorbing various features of existence and there is a movement from within uh, as well quite often in the form of an old reaction to the same things the outer and the inner meet together there is a collision and that collision causes unhappiness we then make some kind of recovery uh, from that, possibly, and then we find that quickly, again, we move back into a fresh cycle, only once again to be, absor- to be caught up in absorbing again and again and again, then meeting in yet another point of movement from within, there is a collision again from the outer to the inner, and the inner to the outer, and once again, distress, worry, etc. Quite often uh, what takes place, what easily takes place of course, is that when this is going on there is something about the self, about the condition of our self which looks rather one-sidedly and lopsidedly meaning in other words we then start to imagine or the self imagines it's all my fault and when it imagines that, when it says that it's all me, of course what happens is that the present seems in a way too small and thus we turn our attention to our past, imagining and hoping that through being uh, absorbed and turning our attention to the past, it will be the resource, it will be the vehicle, the means, in fact to resolve this constant collision with existence. And so then we might, through various vehicles and channels which are available, 
we start working on the present, we start working on the past, and trying in some way or other to deal with what's happening with ourselves in this world that we live in. But of course, what also happens again is that despite all of that, we're once again back in the field of existence, back with the consistent impact upon our eyes and our ears and all the ways, and then very easily we get maybe softer, maybe a little easier, but the same kind of echoes taking place again. The inner having a struggle with itself and the inner having a struggle with the outer. This meeting with life, that means the inner to the outer and the outer to the inner, is in fact the critical point of existence. It is the essential feature of our existence. And that point, meeting that point, awareness of that point, understanding it, is what any teachings of dependent arising, of inner to outer, uh, genuinely are, are all about. And there's a very key term in the text, in the, in the Buddhist uh, tradition. And it's an unwaveringly uh, sane uh, message which is put out. And it's called, quote-unquote, guarding the senses. And when one looks in the text of the, of the Buddha, this refrain, this reminder, this pointing out, keeps coming to us again and again to guard the senses, to protect the senses. Sometimes, in all of that, we kind of interpret it quite unsatisfactorily, and the way that we perceive it is as some kind of austerity, some kind of life denial, some kind of cutting off pleasure, or what I want to do. Instead of treating it with the respect that it deserves and the communication to us, if we guard our senses, we, we will guard our happiness. If we guard our senses, we will guard our contentment. If we guard them, we'll guard our peace of mind simultaneously. And if we, and if we don't, then sooner or later, in various ways and means, troubles, troubles arise for us. And I think one of the major areas uh, of all of this is that when you and I look inwardly to the outer, what we don't often recognize and see is the relationship of one thing to the other. There are, in this meeting point of the inner and the outer, there is often a very severe problem and a very severe blind spot. And it's the inability to see how one thing relates to another. For example, pleasure relating to depression. For example, uh, aversion relating to self-pity. For, for example, going out for this, that and the uh, other and relating to uh, uh, vulnerability, eating relating to stress, etc. Sometimes it might pass through our senses, it might pass through our mind that there are relationships between states and mind and how we use our sense doors, but it may not be that obvious and it may not be that clear to us. And so it takes a vigilance and a guarding of the sense doors. And just to take one very uh, simple and common example of, of, what, of what I mean, um, is plenty of people, and, and plenty of people, some people, uh, uh, I've never quite fathomed it out, but some people uh, um, like to go to the cinema hall, use the language of the movies. 
And some of us say, yes, movies move out of. But anyway, and so some people go regularly to the movies, I hear. And uh, quite often when I come to the uh, uh, US, people will uh, say, uh, uh, say to me, even friends, and even though I rarely go, oh, Christopher, have you seen this film? And uh, you should go and see this film. So someone mentioned to me, I can't even remember the, the, the title, um, uh, uh, Bona Vista Society or something, or whatever. And then this evening, uh, Sharda mentioned a film to me. What was the name of that film? The Matrix. The Matrix, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and my, my daughter said, said to me, oh, I just went to see this film with this um, fellow, whatever his name is, Kevin Reeves or something. And, uh, uh, and um, in The Matrix, and she said, uh, it's one of your kind of films, Dad, uh, etc. And the last two films that I, if I just ramble a bit here, last two, uh, you might think the rest of the talk will be two, but anyway, the last two films that I, I've only been to the cinema, if I may, may say, uh, twice in this decade. Um, uh, I was taken there handcuffed. And um, uh, one was to see a film, um, Seven Years in Tibet, and uh, a crowd of us from the, the Dharma scene in Topness uh, went, including my uh, teenage daughter, there, and uh, she went because of um, Brad Pitt uh, uh, being in it, rather in, than any profound history in Tibetan Buddhism. And I said to her at the end of the film, "What did you think of this? What did you think of it, Nash Nashona? Her name is American Indian name. What did you think of it, Nashona?" And she said, "It was as exciting as watching paint dry on the wall." And <laughs> And my, my response was you know, rather sim similar. I, I had, had the view that uh, this film should be uh, retitled um, Seven Lifetimes in a Cinema. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes people, people uh, go, to, go to the cinema quite regularly. And in um, going uh, uh, re regularly, there's all sorts of uh, absorptions again. Remember, all impressions which are taking place. And these impressions are being absorbed. And sometimes, and I think some of us I'm surely would agree here, there's quite a fair bit of manipulation taking place of emotional life, of, uh, of uh, fe feeling uh, life. And I can't help but think of the obvious, including The Matrix and other films, of uh, the violence. Uh, that takes place uh, in these films, as though there isn't enough uh, or, already. And we might ask ourselves, no matter what the film and the cinema uh, uh, may, may be, do I actually want to have to absorb all of this? Do I want to have to sit in a darkened place with large screens and powerful images and very large loudspeakers blaring um, out this exploitive and manipulative propaganda of consciousness in an utterly make-believe world, in an utterly make-believe world. And quite often, um, of course, all ending rather sweetly at the end of the film, which is so removed from reality. And to get, I didn't go and see this film because I, I, I uh, had no stomach for the nonsense. And, um, and there was a film called Kundan. I don't know if any of you have heard of this film. 
Um, it's a film uh, about, I understand, um, about the Dalai Lama and about, I think, his um, upbringing. And a friend of mine is actually a good, a good friend of mine, and she wrote a biography um, uh, of the Dalai Lama and with beautiful 200 photographs in it, etc. And she went to see the film. And she said, oh, it's a wonderful film, it's a very sweet film, and the story of the Dalai Lama's upbringing from a little boy, and, and going, passing through his life, uh, uh, etc., etc. And she was very touched, she said, touched to tears to see, see this film. And so sometimes we have another kind of absorption taking place, and that kind of absorption is the mythological storyline. It's the, it's the, the, the pleasurable... Uh, a story, and it generates a kind of image, but the image that generates for us is an image out of touch with the actuality of, uh, of, of things, and we easily, because of the vulnerability in the feeling life, take in these things and kind of produce or project, and of course the poor Tibetans are uh, an, an example of uh, people not being able to see them well and clearly because we have an image, an image. And to give you a very clear and rather graphic example of the contrast here of uh, uh, what I mean, is I was in Budgaya in January, and I received a message from a tuku. Tuku is one who is a, a reincarnation of a, a senior lama from a previous lifetime. This is the language of the tuku. Been trained in the Tibetan system, went to a monastery when he was four years of age. He's a Rinpoche, is a, a teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, and he sent to me in the monastery, the Thai monastery, Theravada tradition, remember, a message secretly. And the message was, would I please go and uh, uh, visit him? Would I please meet with him? I'm, uh, I may say, that the senior Western teacher in Budgaya. And I wondered why, why would a, uh, a Rinpoche uh, in the Tibetan tradition want to, want to meet with me secretly? And so I went to see see him, I don't want to, and I, of course, uh, because of respect of confidentiality here, um, um, tell you uh, all the details of what that meet, or any of those details, what that meeting was about. But one thing I can tell you, and, uh, uh, and, and that, and not an uncommon situation, that quite often when young Tibetan children, boys, are taken into monasteries, they are, they are going into a situation which is brutal. They are going into a situation in which they're beaten they're going into a situation where the stick is used on them. And when this boy showed, this man rather, told me as a boy how much he was beaten and then said, look, look, and there were the scars on his head and, and how much he lived in isolation and terror through his youth because he was separated from his parents, felt unwanted in the monastery and was tyrannized by the Tibetan master who ran that particular monastery. And then we ask ourselves, my goodness, why is it that some of these Tibetan masters and in other, tradi other traditions, some, and it's a minority of course, are abusive with power, drugs, alcohol, uh, sexual activities, etc. And we say, oh, it's a, a kind of tradition which is kind of authoritarian. They don't realize, oh, no, it isn't. It's coming out of the childhood. It's coming out of the monasteries. And, uh, and out of that comes these very severe emotional, psychological and authoritarian uh, patriarchal problems. And people who have no monastery life, who have lived in monastery life, and I've spent years in monasteries, 
um, know only too well that from those conditions and causes the influence comes and has its output and its effect. Dal- Dalai Lama of course is a Dalai Lama and he's a fabulous human being but he's fabulous because he received tons of love all the way through. But the other two coups, other Rinpoches, often their story is an absolute horror. It's an absolute nightmare and an absolute disgrace to the Tibetan tradition. But it doesn't get spoken because we've absorbed images. We've absorbed an idea of what that world is like. And we don't dig and probe deep enough to say all cultures, all people, Thais, Tibetans, Burmese, Americans, English, etc., have beautiful people in them and have, and have people who um, have been brutalized as well as all the other ranges of human people. So sometimes we need to step back. We, you and I need to look at, I'm just giving one example from the cin- cinema or whatever it might be, and to really look and check in what ways in our daily life we are absorbing and not examining. We are absorbing and living in make-believe. Because the pleasure of that, the satisfaction of that, the images uh, of, that, of that begin to weigh on us. And sometimes, of course, what happens with us is that we find ourselves in uh, day-to-day circumstances in life feeling pressure inside of ourselves. We've absorbed too much. There is a limit to what we can take in. There is a limit to what we can endure. And if you look at your life, and if you look at problems in your life, and you look at uh, situations and difficulties in your life, and you stop and you attend to all of that, you'll say to yourself, and you'll ask yourself, God, just how much am I absorbing? How much longer can I go on enduring and internalizing all of this? And there are points when we just can't tolerate it anymore, we can't hack it anymore, and we do rebel, we do react, we do have a breakdown, we do get unhappy, we do get severely depressed, because we're absorbing too much. And the system, the the organism, the life force, just isn't made for it. Therefore we step back, we make some space in our life, we come to this fabulous facility here, in the hills and the nature, and the and the sky above and the and the earth and we look around us and we look and we look at the beautiful moon rising tonight and we connect with all of that and we say that yes there are things in life which are genuinely worth being receptive to genuinely worth uh, uh, absorbing and that receptivity to that is made available to us if if and only if if we are prepared to guard the senses in other areas if we're prepared as human beings to say no. I don't need to go and see that film because it's got violence in it. I don't, I don't need to sit in front of the, the TV uh, uh, night, night, night after night or whatever. I, I don't need to read this trash literature. I don't need to keep putting myself under pressure for more and more and more and more knowledge and making me more and more confused and more and, and more and more in conflict and confusion and, and, uh, and cut off from my feeling life. But it isn't easy. It isn't easy to say no. It isn't easy to guard the eyes, to guard the ears, to guard the nose, to guard the tongue, to, to guard the touch. But maybe if we are willing to do that, if we are willing to exercise that wise 
and skillful uh, restraint, maybe we can live. Really live. Because we can't live that way. That isn't, that isn't living, it's, it's a death. It's, it's a death of the spirit. It's a death of the heart. It's a death of a free life. And therefore, the, wisdom, the Buddha in his great and compassionate wisdom reminds us again and again, please, for your own welfare, guard the senses. It's a beautiful instruction to us. It's a beautiful reminder to us. Just today I was... Uh, um, you know, some of you, like myself, lead a life of um, rather a lot of sitting in it and, um, uh, and uh, slow walking, etc. And in the years that I was a monk, you, know, we, we, you think you have a few ob- rules to observe in this environment. Um, in the monkhood, we had uh, 227 uh, to uh, observe. And uh, once a monk, once a month, once a monk... <laughs> A month a month, a month a month especially. Um, the, uh, on the full moon day, uh, the, uh, the abbot or the teacher, the, teacher, the acharya, would uh, recite uh, the, the disciplinary rules, 227 of them, to us. Uh, there. And before we could hear them, we'd have to, there'd be a confession. So a junior monk goes to the senior monk and says what rules uh, he's broken uh, over the last uh, month. And there's a kind of, it's a kind of confession. And then we uh, listen to the rule. The, uh, the uh, poor old abbot has to memorize, not allowed to read from the book. In the tradition, you have to memorize 227 rules in a language which is not your own and say them and all the way through there. And uh, the Ajahn, Ajahn Tamadro, uh, he uh, had the reputation... Uh, in Thailand as being um, the fastest reciter of the rules. <laughs> and he would go on a long and a breathtaking gallop. And so the, the, uh, the monks would carry our little clocks in and, and see it. And every month, oh, gosh, he's down to 33 minutes this month. This is a, a record. And then the, it would go through the monasteries. Right, who's going to beat 33 minutes <laughs> for chanting the 227 rules? Etc. Uh, Etc. Et and some monks are very slow and be, be sitting there for uh, uh, an hour, and, would, and that monk or abbot wouldn't get many points. So, <laughs> so anyway, by and by, while out. Uh, so one of the rules is um, um, no running. Monks are not allowed to to run. It's it's uh, considered extremely unkosher, and to do. Uh, any kind of running is regarded as being extremely unmindful. Um, it, uh, it looks very gross when monks are wearing their red skirts. <laughs> and, and so, therefore, slow, mindful walking there. So, uh, when I left the monastery and uh, disrobed, uh, actually on the East Coast, through Larry Rosenberg, a dear friend and uh, uh, one of the senior Dharma teachers from uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation uh, Center, it's actually, the centre is on Broadway, so twice a year I get a chance to speak on Broadway. It's quite lucky. So anyway, uh, Larry took me to the New Balance shoe factory and gave me a pair of running shoes. So uh, <laughs> since then I've been running. I mean, you know, not that every minute, but anyway, <laughs> see what I mean. And sometimes in Totnes, people, my Dharma friends, when they see me out doing uh, running, shout out, oh, Christopher, what are you running from? You know, and they, you know. They, 
They've just listened to too many talks, really. So while out running today, and on the Spirit Rock land, I want to show you, it's rather sweet, isn't it? It's uh, just on the pathway down there, um, this lovely, as old and worn out skin of a snake. Just lovely, it's just a delight uh, uh, to see. And uh, the Buddha in his uh, teachings speaks of regularly of shedding our old and worn out skin so that we can travel afresh, travel as a new being in this world, travel lightly, etc. And whenever we uh, are blessed enough to see one of these, it may be served for us as an extremely good reminder to us what old skin do I need to shed? <laughs> and sometimes that may show itself in various images, various identities, various roles which you and I know have to be shed. And I was just, when I was speaking at Larry's Centre last uh, Wednesday evening, it just, a woman came up to me and, she said, and it just made my day. And she said, Christopher, I heard you uh, speak here a few months previously in April and I can't remember what the, uh, the theme or the talk was but um, somewhere uh, in it I was referring to the value and the importance of uh, breaking out of a mould which one, uh, in this case, work, which one feel, feels is imprisoning uh, and neither fulfilling for oneself nor in any way nourishing or filling, fulfilling for anybody else. And the woman at the end of the talk, when most people left, I remembered, probably I would think in her early, mid-thirties, came up to me and she said she was working in this case in business in the corporate world. That's all she knew, she's trained for, etc. And she really wants to get out of it. So... All I could do in making a small contribution, I gave a kind of, um, if I may say, eyeball to eyeball, and I said, finish, leave, go, get out. Like, like that. Do something new. Come to India. Something like that. And she uh, 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 took it to heart. She, in fact, um, went to, for a month to uh, Vietnam. And, of course, this country has a long and very painful and distressing uh, 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 history through the uh, war of the uh, American government and military against the people of Vietnam. And she went there for a month. And she came up to me, and this is what made my day. She said, Christopher, I've made the change. And she said, I'm leaving in a few weeks. I'm going back to Vietnam, and I'm going to work in an orphanage there and I'm going to commit, as far as I can see, my uh, care and attention to that. And she said, I've never been so happy. And she said, I just want to express my uh, appreciation. And I think sometimes that, that's what I call a, a one small example of many uh, where somebody has genuinely shed their old and worn-out skin. Yeah. And in, 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 if I may say, a little bit of uh, the, the snake stories, because... Um, um, because monks are not allowed to, um, on being in the monastery, talk about what they might like to talk about, i.e. women, so um, they talk about snakes. And uh, <laughs> it's true, 
those of you who have been monks, not many of you have, will know what I mean. And I was speaking with a dear friend of mine, Venerable Panyavudo, and a very, very dear friend of mine, and took care of me when I was a young man in my mid-twenties, and I was the only Western monk in the, mo in the monastery. And monks always talking snake stories, you know, just <laughs> as, as I say. Their the, the relationship to snakes is uh, always fascinating. And he, as I, he had been, had a very, rather severe snake uh, bite once uh, in his ear uh, uh, there, and um, through uh, sleeping outside. I, if I may say, I don't go on about this, but uh, also had a, a very severe snake bite totally through um, um, the successful practice of mindlessness, and was crossing uh, the rice paddies in the night, forgot the torch, barefooted and across the streams and on the edge of the stream, of course there was a snake and uh, uh, I got bitten. And he said to, he said to me um, that when he was, he was doing his practice um, um, outside and he woke up in the morning and there was an old and worn out snake skin of a cobra right beside him the entire length of his body. And it had shed the skin during the night, and he was just lying there with just the monk's robe on top of him uh, uh, there. We, in the summer months, we often slept outside. And the snake had just rested beside him the entire night, and he woke up, and the entire length of his body, it was one single, uh, um, unbroken, uh, worn-out skin. And these are many other stories I could tell you. I could speak about snakes all night. but uh, anyway. So, sometimes... Just small things in life like that, we express appreciation for the wonder and the miracle which is in the nature there, but also and equally important, you know, just to relate to ourselves. Here's the nature naturally shedding the old, naturally shedding what it doesn't need, naturally shedding what is unsatisfactory, which has had its use. And sometimes we need to recognize whatever area uh, that, that might be, where that might be wise. Not, it's not a fleeing, it's not a running away from, it's not an escape from, it's not a, an avoidance and a denial. Hopefully we get the clarity over these days to know the difference between change, between shedding the old skin and, and, uh, and freeing ourselves in that way, and what, between that and what fleeing and running away is. Not always easy to know and distinguish. So we, so we look at ourselves and we say to ourselves, my goodness, I absorbed much too much which is unsatisfactory the effect and the consequences of it affects my behavior it affects my feelings and my thought and sometimes that pressure builds up and as I said earlier we begin to feel depressed it's the weight of things and the weight rests on the consciousness and we feel depressed we might think and we might believe and it may be a causal influence that the old old meaning childhood uh, upbringing, birth, uh, if not before, all of that has brought about the depression. Yes, they are factors, but it would be a very narrow and restrictive kind of view if we said ex looked in exclusively uh, along those lines. And sometimes it's just as much to do with our events of today as it has to do with the events of what was absorbed yesterday. The events of today matter as much as what was absorbed yesterday or, or yesteryear. And sometimes we look 
And I was just reading a book, it's called In Your Right Mind, it's by the um, uh, psychology correspondent for the Times newspaper in Britain, and he is giving a lay person's dis description of various uh, difficult clinical uh, problems of, of the mind. And he pointed out, he said, probably um, uh, every day we will meet somebody who is depressed, who is really unhappy. Maybe just for a moment, here or there, and we'll have contact with the person, since about one in twenty people in our society are very unhappy, are depressed. And the heart reaches out, and sometimes we look at people and we can't understand it, we can't comprehend it, and we look at their life and we say, but their life, they seem to be, they look so well, and they're beautiful, they're handsome, the past has been uh, uh, okay, they're bright, they're intelligent, they're, they're prosperous, they're affluent. And we say, well, how could it be to have all of this and, and all that goes uh, with it, and yet the consequence being depressed? And sometimes we barely know with ourselves, or we barely know with, with each other, all the conditions and factors that are going on that weigh heavily on the person's life. And, and a key factor in all of that are impressions. Never forget, never for a moment in our life, never forget the weight, the gradual, insidious accumulation weight of impressions on consciousness, depressing the consciousness. So we engage in our practice as we are engaging in our practice here. And in, in that engagement in our practice, we say quietly, sensitively, respectfully, I'm going to guard the senses where they need to be guarded, and I'm going to open the senses where they need to be open. And in the beautiful, many of you commented and noticed, obviously, in this uh, lovely and breathtaking, uh, beautiful facility to look up at the night sky, and just to see that the stars and the wonder and the, the, the miracle of it all, to look out down across the valley, just to walk gently and respectfully uh, on, on, on the earth, to see how in the morning that the fog comes, we hardly know where it's come from, it's descended everywhere, it's held everywhere, two or three hours go by and just as it came, it's just vanished, and, and, that, the, and the lovely clear views along the valley and the terrain. This is worth absorbing. We can't own it, we can't buy it, we can't have it, we can't make it for ourselves. And yet we know that when we're kind of unsatisfactorily, internally absorbed in our own stuff, so to speak, that excludes the beauty. It excludes the wonder, it excludes the, the, the mystery of it all. In giving care to our inner life and that guarding of the sense doors when it's appropriate and the opening of the sense doors uh, when it's uh, uh, appro appropriate, that kind of awareness really, as I said, acts as a real service to, uh, to, each, and to each and every one of us. And sometimes it's just a small gesture. You know, sometimes, and it happens regularly on retreats, one is on a retreat, one is in a relationship. One's come with one's partner, with one's lover, with, with a, a close relative, with a, a dear friend, with a husband or wife or whatever uh, it may be. And maybe some things have been said prior to the situation of arriving here. 
and common, we hear it daily, situations of, say, doubt in the relationship, let us say. Uh, some misunderstanding about an event which took place last week, last month, or whatever. And one is going through the day, trying to be here and now, trying to be uh, aware, and out of the corner of one's eye, or intentionally, one's eye falls on that person with whom one has a difficulty, with whom one has a conflict. One forgot to guard the, the sense door. And from the very contact, contact, it stimulates a feeling, and the feeling stimulates some unhappiness, or as the Buddha said, sometimes that feeling stimulates grief, four words he uses, strong ones, grief, sorrow, lamentation and despair, he says. Just from eye contact, generating a feeling, the feeling generating the wave, and the wave generating despair. And of course, when that happens, we start blindly following that person. We start blindly looking to see what that person is doing. Blindly looking, uh, wanting and grasping and reaching out for attention, for, for uh, acknowledgement, for something or other. And of course, it begins to feed the anguish, feed the confusion, feed the fears, feed the despair. So he's saying, my goodness, in a situation it isn't easy, it isn't comfortable uh, to be in. I know a number of you are in this situation right now, this evening. And so sometimes we, so we try to guard the senses. We've got enough inwardly to work with or, or already. Why keep feeding it? Why keep putting wood on the fire by keep trying to get the attention of the person or the situation or whatever uh, it might be? It tends to generate the reactivity. So therefore, for our welfare, rather careful when necessary, when appropriate, with the eyes. Other situations, warmth, happiness, eye contact, it's lovely and it's beautiful and extremely welcome here. But sometimes one knows it's uh, 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 the stimulation and the impact of a problem. Just from the contact, from the eye, to the feeling, and from the feeling to the, what's going on in, in ourselves. If that certainly applies to the guarding of the senses, in equally and obviously too, it also applies to us with the guarding of the memory, to be watchful of the memory, and how those sometimes in a huge rush, rush in the meditations just can spring up with all the views that go along with it. And so we forget that we need to connect as well that how important as the antidote to all of this is the nature. How important the antidote to all of this is the finding the ways and means to keep receptive in valuable, in, in, in valuable ways open to life. Some of you will know, just, you know from one or two from the small group uh, meeting uh, this morning with a number of you something that we're looking at and we're attending to. And the deeper wisdom inside of oneself says, no, enough. Deeper wisdom inside of oneself to perpetuate will only perpetuate one's own difficulty, one's own anguish. Therefore, to say no 
is the wisdom. But then sometimes when we want to say no to whatever uh, it might be, we need to know what's going to give us the authority to stay steady with the no. It's all very well, you and I, using this incredibly sloppy language of choice. And the culture which we live in uses the word choice so glibly and so shallowly and so superficially. Oh, shall I buy that red shirt or that maroon shirt? I mean, I mean, as though the whole planet is waiting for an answer. You know, and, and in areas of, of, of uh, choice, it's nothing to do with the superficialities of little variations on the theme that come to our eyes and our ears about whether I'll choose this or choose that. Real, genuine, authoritative choice it comes out of circumstances and out of the capacity to say no. That's making a choice. All, all, the, all, the, all the rest is, 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 is uh, living in a, in a deception to actually have the authority inside of oneself to say no. No to the habit. No to the addiction. No to the going on and on in the mind about something which is not worth the entertainment. No to um, eating more and more. No to sleeping more and more. No to shopping more and more. No to wanting more and more. Our capacity to say no, if there is choices in life, that's certainly one of the most important. Our capacity to say yes in areas where it's wise and skillful, yes to awareness, yes to clarity, yes to looking into life, yes to receptivity to the nature, yes to living a really full and emancipated and happy life. Then we're genuinely talking about choices that genuinely make a genuinely significant and real difference. But in order to have the capacity to say no, the things that you and I really know we have to say no to. It can't be done with the thought. It can't be done on the momentary impulse. It can't be done on the think, think, oh, this is a really good idea. It can't be done to going to yet another mind-body shop and getting yet another self-help book there the books of people's homes, whenever I stay in people's homes, they're stacked with them. If people just took notice of one of those sentences, it would transform the life. But they, but they're just more and more self-help, 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 self-help. Yeah, of course, books by Christopher Titmus and others are in there with it as, as well. <laughs> So, meditation, awareness, focusing, keeping steady, presence here and now, all of that contributes to harnessing the mental energies, to bringing the focus together, to keeping ourselves well established, so that when we say no, we mean it. When we say no longer, we mean it. When we say enough is enough of this suffering, we mean it. We can't do it 
on just a, a short-lived momentary motivation of saying no, no matter how convincing we are to ourselves and others. And how much we say to ourselves, oh, I, I've made the resolution today, um, I'm not going to smoke another cigarette for the rest of my life, or, or whatever. I'm, 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 I'm not going to yell at one more person in the office, or uh, whatever it, it, it might be, and all the other things that we uh, might say. It's so often just a short-lived good idea. If we had carried through all the times we have said enough is enough. No, this has to stop. If we actually carried this through as human beings, this world would be utterly unrecognisable. It would be happy, it would be safe, it would be harmonious, it would be integrated, it would be everything which would make life at every level worth living if human beings knew how to say no, knew how to guard the senses. The guarding of the senses comes with a mind which is trained and practiced to guard them. Making that happen, cultivating that, practicing of that, brings out of us an extraordinarily fresh awareness. And that awareness has an, uh, a natural way of being in our life, and we begin to feel, in the cells, we begin to feel a natural sense of freedom. And it, so it may start from guarding the senses, and therefore some confusion and difficulty, because it isn't easy to do. But it may bring out of us a natural guarding of the senses, not through effort, not through uh, intention, not through any movement of the mind in that way, but there is a wisdom which is natural, which has no interest to go down the slippery downhill slope. It's, the interest is gone. And therefore, the wisdom is looking after the senses. That brings out of us a happiness. It brings out of us a lovely, sweet joy uh, with life and a, and a wonderful sense of a limitless uh, expansiveness. And since it embraces all, it's not me and that. It's not dual in its nature. All this the teachings point to. All this, they say, this is the potential of a human being. Let's not waste our potential. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live a happy and free life. Let's have our couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please?